like that. All right, good morning once more. Um, you are kindly invited to turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. And I will turn in my Bible with you. 1 Peter, chapter 1, and then we'll be starting in verse 22 and studying through chapter 2, verse 3. And, and 1 Peter chapter 2 begins with a well-known command that we're going to kind of be centered around as we study chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 1, it says, Desire the pure milk, it's actually verse 2, Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Um, we are commanded to be hungry. We are commanded to want, to desire, to yearn, to hunger, to thirst, to strive after. And one of the reasons why we, as a family, gather together here, and one of the reasons why you set aside a time daily to seek the Lord in his word, it, it's not just so that you can learn the answers for a test that's coming up. Like, that's not what we're doing. This isn't like study hall. Okay? It's not to gain knowledge that puffs up. Now, we are coming to the Lord and coming as his family, knowing that our desires are disordered and that we want things that we shouldn't want sometimes. And it's, we're, we're coming to stimulate the correct desires to change the things we want, stirring up our affections, changing the things we desire. So let's get a running start. Actually, go back to verse 22 of chapter 1. But notice as we read, please, the three times the word of God is mentioned because this is what leads us to the conversation about the word in chapter 2, verse 2. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as, as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word by which the gospel, which by the gospel was preached to you. Now read into chapter 2. Therefore, Laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let's pray. Jesus, we have tasted and seen that you are good. We've tasted your grace. Each one here has tasted something of your grace and your sustaining power that's allowed us to come this far in this life to see your goodness and a bit of your holiness and much of your kindness. We pray that you would stir up in us the correct desires, that we would desire your word, which has caused us to be born again, that we would be filled with the right hungers and the right thirsts so that we can strive for the right things. We are seeking you now, Christ Jesus. We pray that you would be found by those hearts that are seeking you. Amen. Amen. So we're we're doing a little bit of chapter one, a little bit of chapter two. Remember, Peter didn't put in the chapter breaks, so it's all one thought here. Uh, chapter two, one, two, and three is part of the, the thought processes of chapter one. He talked about the word, which played this role in our new birth, 
this is the word that we desire. He's talked about loving each other. And verse 1 in chapter 2 describes some of the results of walking in love. When we love well, we put away these things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy because love is kind and love rejoices in the truth. We put away envy because love does not envy but desires the good of the other. We put away evil speaking because, again, love is kind and does not rejoice in iniquity. New life means we have new love. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts, Romans 5 says, and we love the stuff of our salvation, including this nourishing word of the gospel. We shun these evil practices and these things that cause division and strife between people and instead desire the pure milk of the word. It says, if indeed we have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, this, this is one of those ifs that could read since, right? Uh, since you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We have tasted that, right? We have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Peter says we have. He's not doubting that his audience had tasted the grace of the Lord. He's already said that in chapter one, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's, that sounds like grace to me. But he goes on, he says, you've been born again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He says that you're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. All that sounds like grace. Now, and twice here in verse 3 and again in verse 23 of chapter 1, Peter says we've been born again. Because of this new birth, we get to call God our Father. It sounds like the pilgrims and exiles had tasted grace. Or how about in chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 8, where he observes that even though they are grieving for a time, they are rejoicing greatly, rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory because they are currently receiving the salvation of their souls. This salvation, Peter says, it's the very salvation that those Christians were experiencing in real time was a salvation that prophets and angels desired to look into. And all of this is just delicious grace. You've tasted it. As Christians, you have tasted the goodness of God. And this is the point. We have experienced the goodness of God. Therefore, we are to press into the desire for the word of God. This is language of the heart. It's the stuff of desire, of sensory experience and lived reality. And this, this has always been the way God has reached out to his people, with an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter believes that the Christians he is writing to had obeyed the command from Psalm 34, verse 8. In full, that verse reads, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Tasting and, and putting your faith in, these are two concepts that, that hold hands throughout Scripture, even into John 6, where Jesus says, you know, he equates believing in him with eating his flesh and blood. Peter believes that the church is blessed because they have tasted the goodness of God in trusting in him. This feast of his grace has been made available to them by faith. Those are two other concepts that you can't really ever unlink in Scripture, right? Grace through faith. Blessed is the man who trusts in him, who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Much of 1 Peter chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is showing the blessedness of that trust. Peter said that their hope, the hope of the Christian, is in Christ and that they could rest the fullness of the weight of that hope in God. 
He's repeated the truth in chapter one. You have faith in God and that is a strong faith. Romans 5, 5 says, hope does not disappoint. This hope is how they can rejoice with exceeding joy, even while they're grieving and suffering. And we're, we're so familiar with this phrase, grace through faith, as well we should be. Uh, it's a good mission statement to have, right? It's a, it's a good thing to have firmly fixed in your hearts. But here we see it fleshed out. The pilgrims and exiles had tasted grace because their faith, more precious than gold, was set on a firm foundation. And now at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Peter includes these beautiful observations and encouragements about the word of God, which is so closely connected to these supreme truths of grace through faith. The Christian's desire for the word of God was connected first to the taste of God's grace. In fact, if you look at verse 2, you see that there's two things that they are eating or tasting. It's the word of God and the grace of God. Paul says you taste both of these things. Desire the pure milk of the word. If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The parallel here is that grace is received through the word of God. It's caused you to be born again after all. Grace and the word are inextricably connected. And as new creations who have been born again to a living hope, we are filled by the word of God and the grace of God. And so we desire that pure milk. And as Peter has maintained that this grace is available to us through faith, just like Paul teaches elsewhere, we see again how he arrives at this place where he's lifting our eyes and our appetites to the word, to desire the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes from hearing the word spoken to us. And our, our faith is our first move. We think of that as kind of our participation, but the real first move is always going to be from him. Our faith comes from his word. I, I've shared this before, but it's like when a baby says its first word, which for most of our kids was addressed to the dog rather than mama or dada. But when the baby says its first word, that comes after months and months of that child hearing words spoken to them, about them, around them. Parents speak for months before baby speaks. Our faith is like that. Our response to the Lord is like that. We say our first words, I believe, usually followed with help my unbelief. But this is only a response to his words, which have been constantly spoken, relentlessly sung over us, around us by our loving father. He gets the first word. To say that faith comes by the word of God is very similar to what Peter observed in chapter one. We are born again, the new birth, which comes through faith, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Hold these ideas together in your mind, this faith that's of more worth than gold, and God's grace, which you have experienced and tasted, and then the living, abiding, eternal word of God that has caused you to be born again. These are all ingredients present in the same recipe. <laughs> your salvation was granted to you with these things, grace through faith by the word of God. Now, because we appreciate the word and because we want to obey 1 Peter 2 verse, verse 2 and desire the word more, let's revisit the end of chapter 1. Look at these glorious truths about the word that Peter shares. He says, having been born again, verse 23, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This is how you were born again. In some way, this, granted, this word granted you new life. And we see a, a few things about this word. First, it's 
it's incorruptible, and then we see that it's alive, and we see that it's eternal. Now, Peter's already described our inheritance as incorruptible, back in verse 4. And you'll remember that all of these blessings that God gives find their full meaning and home in the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't give any blessing apart from his son. He is our inheritance. Well, it just so happens that he is the word as well. Jesus is the word of God. Now, what does that even mean? One of the things that it means is that Jesus of Nazareth, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, who rose again the third day and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. He is the full message the Father has to speak. We express ourselves through words. Jesus is the expression of God the Father. He is God made flesh. Everything God has to say to us has been said in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, I am with you always, we feel the hope in us arise. That's an incorruptible word. We confess the truth in Hebrews 13. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We sing to our God, thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. We trust Jesus to be these things because he is an incorruptible word. And as we trust Christ, the incarnate word, so we trust the written word we have in scripture. We trust both to remain uncorrupted. Of course, we believe this to be true about Jesus, who is perfect, but we also trust that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the words of Scripture, will continue to be faithful to preserve the words of Scripture. Uh, it's really rather something uh, that no matter how many times they translate this thing, and I like some translations better than others, you do too, but no matter how many times they've translated it, they haven't found a translation that doesn't present Christ as Savior of the world. It's in every single Bible you can find. The word is incorruptible. The word is also alive. The word of God lives and abides forever. Once again, this rings true in a special way when we make that connection between Jesus and as the incarnate word. The word of God is settled in heaven. That's what Psalm 119.89 says. You know what else is settled in heaven? The one who has sat down at the right hand of the Father. But this idea of the living word is true in other ways. Just like we talked about with the living hope back when we were in verse 1 or verse 3 of chapter 1. We saw that it's a hope that is dynamic, it's active, it has power to change us, to shape us, to bring us home. It's moving, it's, it's not inert. The, the, so the living word is not an inanimate concept for us to deal with like any other philosophy or idea or, or novel or something like that. The word of God is instead living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is not true of other written documents. The word of God, while completely true, is not merely about statements of fact, which could also be true. It's, it's more like an invasion. It's not so much syllogisms or equations that check out if you put them to the test. The word of God is more like an explosion. Now, there's a lot of chemistry in an explosion that a person with that kind of training could graph and write papers on and fill up a chalkboard with information about, but an explosion also blows stuff up. 
The word of God is, is more like that. The mind of the author is in the book, reaching out to the one who hears it, destroying things, cutting things off, and reshaping things and causing things to grow. You were born again as a Christian, not because you had good ideas or because you understood a secret code hidden in an ancient document. That's not how you got saved. You were born again to a living hope by a living word, which has taken hold of you and has effectually changed you from a dead person to a living person, making you a completely new creation and is capable of transforming you from glory to glory. The word changes us. This is true of the written word because it is true of the incarnate word. Christ changes us, and one of the ways he does so is through scripture. The word is incorruptible. It is alive, and it is eternal. It says it abides forever. In the beginning was the word. And this is the truth that Peter doubles down on by bringing up this prophecy from Isaiah 40. He quotes it here. He says, all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Nothing lasts. Generations come and go, live and die, and nothing, no civilization stands forever. But the word of the Lord does. As Peter seeks to reorder our desires and to elevate the longings of our heart, he is trying to fix our affections on something that lasts longer just than your life. When God speaks, he speaks truth that is sure and steadfast and worthy of our hope. Now, stirred by this thrilling realization that there is this thing, this living word, which will outlast empires and go on past forever, when everything else will fade into the distance, Peter says, that word, you know, that's the word that saved you, right? This word characterizes something of your salvation in your new birth. Verse 26, he says, now this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. He says that the gospel, the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation, it's a message contained in the everlasting, living, incorruptible word of God. When God speaks, there's gospel in it. The gospel is preached by the word of God. That's not to say that the gospel... Um, it's, it's not wrong to say that the gospel is the word of God. That's absolutely true and correct. But he, he uses the words a little differently here and, and allows for some distinction. The gospel is the message of God's love for us demonstrated in Christ's sacrifice, which saves us from sin. It's Jesus of Nazareth, his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel must contain that message. So the gospel is not, say, David and Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den. But those are part of the word of God as well. But the story of Jesus is hidden away in these stories, isn't it? And all the prophets that ministered to us, not for themselves, we're told in chapter 1, searching what or what manner of time, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, they prophesied of grace, Peter says in verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, The prophets prophesied of grace, the word which endures forever, which we have written for us in the scripture, is a word that contains the gospel. And that includes the entirety of scripture. When you read the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, or even Paul's written preaching in the epistles, or the author of Hebrews in making his case for the gospel's supremacy, what scriptures are they preaching from? The law and the prophets. Peter on Pentecost preaches the gospel 
and he does so, his texts for that sermon are Joel chapter 2, Psalm 101, and Psalm 16. He didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? But he had the word, scripture, and he brought the gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that Jesus preached the gospel. And we know that he went into synagogues and read from Isaiah. He told the Pharisees, these are they which speak of me. He teaches the disciples on the road to Emmaus that the scriptures spoke of him. I'm just trying to encourage all of you because I know that for those of you starting your Through the Bible in a Year thing, you're going to be in Leviticus in about a month. So I want you to get really excited about that. But, but Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel to people by way of the scripture. The gospel came by way of scripture. The Christians at this point hopefully know the greatness of their salvation that Peter's been writing about. They've been saved to the uttermost. The mercy of God has been abundant. He's reminded, Peter's been reminding them that the grace they've received through faith is according to this living, everlasting, incorruptible word of God which creates. And that the relationship of believer and scripture goes back all the way to the moment of their conversion. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Remember, Peter, he's trying to make them hungry for this. His teaching is to the heart, to the appetites. And he does this in part by reminding them of the sweet taste of grace that they've already experienced. He's reminding them of their conversion, of the goodness of God that's called them from darkness to light. So he speaks about the word in all these glowing terms. And then in chapter 2, he says, so be hungry for it. Let's read chapter 2 again from verse 1. Therefore... Laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. He wants them to desire the word. But leading up to this command to desire, he says that you will be laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. Now, this is backwards from what you might expect the scripture to say. We know that the word has a purifying effect that the word sanctifies us, that it is through time spent under the word of God that our souls are shaped, our appetites are refined, our hearts, loves are properly ordered. So knowing that, you might, you, you might write this verse, if you were Peter, saying, desire, desire the milk so you can grow, so that you can then lay aside all of these sinful behaviors. Do you see what I'm saying? That wouldn't be wrong theologically or doctrinally, it's not, but it's not what it says here. Peter implies that as you approach the word of God, as you go to walk with the word as a light to your path and a lamp to your feet, you will be casting off these things on your way to the word. That's what Peter says. Now, I don't want to bring this up as if there's a you must be this tall to ride sign on the Bible. You know, you must be this holy before you read the Psalms or something. You, I, I don't want to give you the idea that you've got to get your whole act together before you read the Bible. This is a word for sinners, and it does have a cleansing effect on the sinner and a healing effect on the broken. The word of God is food for the hungry and medicine for the sick. But if you want to understand the scripture, if you want to understand it, know this. Your pursuit of holiness has a direct effect on your comprehension of scripture. And this isn't a sort of gatekeeping by the Holy Spirit where he looks how good you did yesterday and then decides what truth to show you this morning. He's much more gracious than that. It's not quite so transactional as you might think, but it's a principle that stands true. The word is spiritually discerned 
and the carnal mind cannot understand it, nor will the carnal mind appreciate it. If we are walking in unrepentant sin and continuing in these habits of a hardened heart, carelessly, maybe flippantly, even just thinking like, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's fine, and we're all equally good and bad, and it's okay. The things like, um, the things that are listed in verse 1 could easily be present in your life and then blocking your understanding of Scripture. We cannot expect our time in the Word to be, to be the nourishment it needs to be if these interpersonal issues of verse 1 are characteristic in our life. You cannot ex- expect to understand the concepts of faith, hope, and love, which are understood in the places of the heart, when your heart is actively thinking of how you're going to destroy that person that's irritating you. Look at the list. Malice, okay, which is intentionally wishing harm on another, wanting to hurt them. Uh, deceit and hypocrisy are both kinds of dishonesty. Hypocrisy is uh, essentially lying in public by word or mannerisms. Uh, envy, which is uh, resentful discontentment. Okay, that's envy. Resentful discontentment. Uh, evil speaking, which is specifically, it's, it's speaking ill of others. It's talking bad about someone, probably behind their back. These are things that do not belong in this setting of receiving the milk of the word. They are hindrances, cobwebs and dust in the window. They've got to be brushed aside so the light can come through. We are told to lay aside the things of the flesh so that we can put on the things of the spirit. This is how we come to the word of God. This is part of desiring that pure milk of the word. The point of spending time in the word of God is to have an encounter with the author. When Peter compares our thirst for the word with a baby desiring milk, he's not considering bottle feeding an option here. Okay, To want milk is to have the skin-on-skin contact of mother and child. We want the word, but we want the contact, physical contact if possible, with the God of the word. We, we desire milk, and it comes from one source. If it was just any other book, the state of your soul might not have a great effect on your understanding of it. But since our Bible study is not primarily about information, but rather internal transformation, the state of your soul and what it is attached to and what it is struggling with and what it is attracted to, all of that has a great effect on how you encounter Scripture. Now again, the word is profitable for correction. So going to the word with the sin still in your heart and having the sword of the spirit cut away those things that don't belong, that's probably an experience we've all had. That's good, that's fine. But this does not do away with this other biblically endorsed practice, what seems to be the norm even that's expected, which is what Peter brings up. It's simply this, get right with God. And get right with other people, even if it's just in the quiet of your own heart. And then go to the word and drink the milk and let it be health to your bones and nourishment to your soul. Peter's not the only one who has this idea. Listen to Hebrews 12, 14. It says, pursue peace with all people. That could be a a cross-reference for verse 1, right? And holiness. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. What do we want? What do we want when we desire the written or the spoken word? We want to see the word who was with God and is God. We want an encounter with God. All the things Peter told us to lay aside, malice, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, for the most part, these are interpersonal issues. They're problems you have with another person. 
He says, lay aside these attitudes you have towards others that are not from the heart of God. Then come to the meal. And then in the Hebrews verse I just read, it's the same thing. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue holiness so that you may see him. Think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying that when you bring a gift to the altar, speaking of temple sacrifice and worship, make sure you're right with your brother. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Coming to the word as food for our souls and going to the altar with a gift, they're, they're different things, but both are meant to be an encounter with the living God of heaven. So in this, we see some parallel lines. If you desire the milk of the word, putting aside your envy, deceit, and other, these other things is the way to enter into this feast. You have tasted that the Lord is good. You've tasted his grace. And his grace is for you in his word. The encouragement that Peter has for us is this desire it like newborn babes desire the milk. The word for desire is a strong word. When the Old Testament is translated into Greek, this is the word used in Psalm 42, which you know it's as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's an instinctive, primal desire that pushes all others aside. And, and pushing these other things aside, the malice, the deceit, those things. You know, Peter doesn't command any of the Christians to put these things away. He assumes that they will be putting them away. Because he knows that once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, your desires change. These, these could be read as commands. Sure, we should put away all malice. I think Paul writes it elsewhere that we should put away these things. But the new covenant take on commandments is different than the old covenant take on commandments. Um, when the, in the Old Testament or any of the law, and you say, do this, do this, do this, it's like teaching uh, a person how to dance by showing them where to put their feet, right? And the new covenant turn, comes along and someone actually turns on the music. And it becomes more instinctive if you've got rhythm, Okay. <laughs> Peter assumes all these people have already heard the music. They've already tasted. And he says, yeah, you, you know the rhythms of the, and the beauty of the grace of God. You've tasted it. You've tasted it. So as the music goes on, as you're listening to the music, you're going to be putting aside malice and deceit and everything because those are, those are things that don't go with this meal. Those are things that get in the way of what you desire and hunger and thirst for. This deer panting for the water brooks. It's this instinctive primal desire that pushes all else aside. This is evidence of your new birth, a desire for an encounter with God and his word. Just like a newborn baby has a built-in desire for mother, your new birth has wired you for this heavenly desire to hear from God, to have an encounter with God. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. God has spoken. And his word has created everything out of nothing. His word spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And Paul writes, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. 
who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me see your face. That's his word, the word that saved you. And just as tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is a personal experience of the grace of the Lord, so now, knowing the creative and saving power of God and his word, we desire to press into that personal experience, that welcome that Jesus offers when he says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone who thirsts, come to the fountain. And in pursuing this refreshment for our souls, we become diligent to brush aside those things in our heart that would get in the way of that beautiful vision of Jesus. So we hunger and we thirst and he fills us up and the filling increases our appetite and we hunger and we thirst. And we find that there's even more to be had. Desire the pure milk of the word. You've tasted his grace. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We worship you and we, we come to you full of desire, full of desires, however weak, but we offer them to you to be ordered and strengthened uh, because we even want to want you more. We seek you, Jesus. We, we pray that your word your pure word, your incorruptible word, as it was preached this morning, would sink into our hearts, that it would fall on good soil, that it would bear much fruit. To your glory, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, all.